Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon. Welcome. Uh, thank you all for being here today. I am Giovanni Singleton, coordinator of the Lunch Poems series. Please now join me in welcoming Robert Hass, who is the director of Lunch Poems, and he will introduce this afternoon's reading. So thank you all for, for being here for this uh, wonderful occasion. Um, I asked Giovanni how many hits we got on um, line for last year's re- faculty reading, and she said the total for the year was 340,000. So, um, so I hope that it's not designed to make your readers <laughs> panic. But uh, uh, I guess iTunes picked us up as a featured uh, site, so, site. And so, in in this way, this beautiful room and its poetry is getting out into the world. And that's happened partly, mainly because Tom Leonard has and David Doerr have invited us to to be here now for almost 15 years doing 17 doing lunch poems and and two years ago we started this I love the idea that we have a, a story hour in the library if those of you who come to lunch poems haven't gotten to story hour uh, the curators are the two young novelists in the English department uh, Vikram Chandra and Melanie Abrams and they're inviting all the interesting younger and older novelists and prose writers in the Bay Area to come and be the librarians who read to us at story hour so I hope you will be there Uh, and of course this happens because Giovanni Singleton makes it happen Um, she's our coordinator and this year she's also publishing her first book of poems and so part of the excitement this year is in the spring we're going to get to celebrate uh, Giovanni's uh, book with well it's not it's your first you've published chat books but this is the first major book. So the idea is in this beautiful place, this amazing institution to ask the the Berkeley community to read us poems and uh, I'm going to introduce a few of the readers and introduce Tom who will introduce a few of the readers and get out of the way. Uh, In alphabetical order, our first reader is Renell Alexander professor of Slavic languages and literature, specialist in South Slavic and Balkan languages, literature, folklore and culture. She's the author of number of studies of South Slavic dialects of the standard textbook grammars of Bulgarian and BCS, Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian, and of a book on her favorite Yugoslav poet, Vasco Popa, the amazing Vasco Popa, whom I met in Belgrade, who walked me across to take to lunch, who walked me across the park in a, in a, in a beautiful Belgrade restaurant in a district that looked like um, uh, Brooklyn, maybe, Brownstone, Brooklyn, uh, an open restaurant. They began the meal with uh, shots of Slivovitz and a plate full of uh, a plate full of uh, uh, bell peppers. And Vasco Popa said in Serbian, which I didn't understand, it was translated to me, give the American the red pepper. <laughs> was still a socialist country. Anyway, it's thrilling. 
It was thrilling to have her here. Uh, it is thrilling to have her here. Please welcome Rennell Alexander. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for that introduction, uh, both to me and to my favorite poet, uh, Vasco Popa. Um, I have been to that same restaurant with him numbers of numerous times, and also have spent many wonderful hours in conversation with him at his small but very elegant Belgrade apartment with very high ceilings. He's sitting at the table, the desk where he wrote all of his poetry, and I in the chair for one of the many visitors who would come and talk with him. He was always fascinated to hear what a linguist had to say about the language of his poetry. He said, I talk to these literary people all the time, but language, that's really, really what I like to hear about. Um, Vasco is maybe not a household word in the West, but he's been translated into many, many world languages, and he is very well known uh, in the world of poetry. Uh, everybody who knew him was very saddened when he died at the age of 68 of cancer in January 91. But at the same time, we were gratified that he was spared the knowledge and the, the uh, witnessing of the terrible, violent, brutal events that tore his country apart. So at least we can be grateful for that. Um, all of his poems are short and deceptively transparent. They have strikingly original images, and they are all embedded within uh, larger units so that each one resonates at several different levels of uh, meaning. And I'm going to read uh, from the uh, unit, the book, called Spore no Nebo, Secondary Heaven. I'm going to read the first poem of the first cycle. It is a book composed of seven cycles of seven poems each, and that symmetry is obviously not accidental. I'm going to read the very first poem of the first cycle and of the whole unit, and the central poem of the central cycle and of the whole unit. Uh, the translations are by Anne Pennington and Francis Jones from a very fine single-volume work of his collected poems, which is readily available in case you want to read more. Zvezdoznancheva Ostavchina Ostale su za njim njegove reči, lepše nego svet. Niko ne sme u njih da se zagleda. Čekaju na okukama vremena veće nego ljudi. Ko može da ih izgovori? Leže na mutavoj zemlji, teže nego kosti života. Smrti nije pošlo za rukom da ih umiraz da ih odnese. Niko ne može da ih podigne, niko da ih obori. Zvezde padelice glave sklanjaju u senke njegovih reči. The stargazer's legacy. His words remained after him, fairer than the world. No one dares gaze at them. They wait at time's turnings, greater than people. Can anyone pronounce them? They lie on the dumb earth, heavier than life's bones. Death did not manage to carry them off as a dowry. No one can lift them up. No one can throw them down. The falling stars hide their heads in the shadows of his words. And now the central poem, which comes at the very apex of a complex narrative about 
the uh, search for uh, existence identity of the inhabitants of this secondary heaven. Pripreme za doček. Podižemo kapiju od svojih rastcvetalih kostiju na ulazu u nebo. Prostiremo pola duše uz jednu padinu neba. Smišljamo trpezu od svojih skamenjenih dlanova na samom vrhu neba. Prostiramo pola duše niz drugu padinu neba. Gradimo postelju od svoga razlistalog crca na izlazu iz neba. Radimo sve ovo u mraku, sami, bez pomoći vremena. Pitamo se jesu li to stvarno pripreme za doček ili samo za ispraćaj. Preparations for a welcome. We set up a gate of our flowering bones at the entrance to heaven. We spread half our soul up one slope of heaven. We think up a table of our petrified hands at the very top of heaven. We spread half our soul down the other slope of heaven. We build a bed of our leafy hearts at the way out of heaven. We do all this in the dark, alone, without the help of time. We wonder if these are really preparations for a welcome or only a farewell. Thank you. Thank you for that. What a wonderful gift. When the violence was worst in... Uh, in uh, um, that part of the world, I took down uh, Vasco Popa's the Ann Pennington volume from my shelf, just wanting to mm-hmm. check in with him, though I knew he was gone. And the uh, Belgrade, of course, is the white city. And the first poem I picked up, the first line I read was, Great Lord Danube, the white city is sleeping tonight. I thought, there's a poet who's made, inhabited a place forever in our imagination. Um, and how lucky we are to get to hear that in his language. Um, our next reader, we're very grateful f- to have him here, is George Breslauer, who is executive vice chancellor of this university and its provost. He joined the faculty of political science as an expert in Soviet politics and foreign affairs. He received a distinguished teaching award two a year uh, in the Hull University in 1997. He was named Chancellor's Professor in 1998. He's a member of the American Association for the Advancement of Slavic Studies, the World Affairs Council, and the Pacific Council on International Policy. He's written or edited 12 books, mostly on Russian and Soviet politics and foreign relations. Most recently, Gorbachev and Yeltsin as leaders. He's had that distinguished career as a scholar and an academic and a thinker about that, and now he's uh, keeping shop for all the rest of us in difficult times. Uh, please welcome George Breschlauer. Good morning. Uh, I was asked to read or recite my favorite poem, and it has nothing to do with Russia. (laughs) 
Uh, it has everything to do with my um, own spiritual development. And the poem I want to share with you today is one that is familiar to most, if not all of you. Psalm 23 begins with, The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, so you've probably, almost all of you, heard that. Of course, it was not originally written in English. Uh, it's, I'll be using my own slightly, slight variation of the King James Version. Uh, the King James Version, we learn, is actually not very faithful to the original biblical language. Bob Alter, our own Professor Alter, has written a book called The Book of Psalms, and uh, he analyzes Psalm 23 in its King James Version as it is translated uh, in that version and compares it to the original and tells us some uh, very important things about how it differs from the original. Uh, to give you one example, the last word of this psalm is forever, and that doesn't mean forever in the original. Um, similarly, I've heard it, I've heard it uh, uh, read in a very modern version, which is made gender neutral, which I suppose has its positive features substantively. But what, what both Bob Alter's translation and what these more modernistic or postmodernistic translations uh, sacrifice for me is the cadence. And if it were not the cadence of the King James Version, uh, it would not be my favorite poem. I'm not a poetry specialist, a poetry theorist. I have nothing particularly profound to say about these things. I'm just trying to explain why I like this poem. What appeals to me about it is its cadence and its imagery, which in combination I find mesmerizing. Uh, the one th the word that I changed for the purpose of this reading, where they say walk, I say wander. Where they say walk in, I say wander through. Because I find that cadence more emotionally appealing to me. So it's a, it's a very, both substantively and in form, a very personal matter as to what your favorite poem is. And uh, this is a glorification of a benevolent God. Uh, it evokes emotions in me. Uh, I was reading Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence, where on one passage she's talking about how one of her protagonists reacts to a particular book of verse. And she said, she wrote, it was so warm, so rich, and yet so ineffably tender that it gave a new and haunting beauty to the most elementary of human passions, unquote. And I thought, yeah, that's how I respond to Psalm 23. Uh, the imagery is not only beautiful, it provides solace the solace of being protected by an omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent shepherd who cares for and guides his flock, authoritatively guides his flock. Uh, I don't need Psalm 23 when dealing with campus affairs, but uh, <laughs> I do recite it more frequently at 37,000 feet when severe turbulence hits. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
Yea, though I wander through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. I know it is a gorgeous thing. What, 400 years old? No, it's still totally alive, that language. Um, as I said, this happens through partly through the imagination and generosity of the library, and the librarian is Tom Leonard. I'm going to ask him to uh, introduce the rest of the readers. Please welcome Tom Leonard. Bob is lead, leaving us not because I'm better, but because he has to teach. <laughs> um, you received as a sort of welcome the, um, we call it bookmark, that, mounts, that, that announces the second century of this library celebration that will be is really kicked off by this lunch poems. This is a sophisticated audience. You know that the image is a visual poem not actually our plan to implement. Uh, after you see all the scaffolding, there will be no explosions in this library, just celebrations. It's uh, appropriate that I have a library colleague to introduce, Murtis Cochran. Murtis is from the Deep South, and I love her language for that reason alone. She, um, we might say, escaped after education at Texas A&M. She arrived in Berkeley um, in 1984 and has worn a variety of hats in the library. Uh, she currently uh, is the head of research and collections for the humanities and social sciences um, in the Del Moffitt libraries. Murtis, you didn't have to come far. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Good afternoon. I'm going to read um, a poem today by Dr. Maya Angelou called Still I Rise. And maybe what I have in common with her is the Deep South. We both were born in one of those A states. I was born in Alabama and she was born in Arkansas. So today, uh, the poem I'm reading, Still I Rise, was first published in 1978. Today, I'm reading from a 2001 edition, beautifully illustrated with art by uh, Diego Rivera. So that's my library plug. It is from the library, and you can check it out because the pictures are too small for you to see now. So you can do that later. I was fortunate to... Um, Hear Dr. Angelou read her poetry many years ago 
in this very room. And still, I Rise has been a favorite ever since. I have a copy hanging on my wall in my office as a daily inspiration for those days when I think I can't take another step, or for those days when, um, for those not so good times in my life, or when I, when I think that I have an insurmountable challenge. I can look at my wall and I can see this poem there. And um, I haven't been able to hear Dr. Angelou read in person in a very long time, not recently. But through the invention of YouTube, you can see her read her poetry online. But today, you hear my virgin. Still I rise. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Cause I walk like I've got all wells pumping in my living room? Just like moons and like suns, with the certainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still, I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken? Bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops weakened by my soulful cries. Does my haltiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard, cause I laugh like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still, like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean, leaping and wide, wailing and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise into a daybreak that's wondrously clear. I rise, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the hope and the dream of the slave. I rise, I rise. I rise. Thank you. George Jacqua has been a gardener at UC Berkeley for over 23 years. In the mid-1970s, he enrolled as a philosophy student at Cal. And, as the story goes, he soon realized he didn't understand uh, anything these folks were talking about. He escaped, I'm told, from Moses Hall, and now lives in a shack in the fields of Isleton. And that has made all the difference. George. Hi. Thanks for having me here today. 
A couple of weeks ago, I was at Evans Hall watering some trees, and I noticed uh, uh, up at some branches uh, a little white object. So I pulled it down, and lo and behold, it's this great white hat. And I said, well, this will be great for the kickoff. So I'll put it on since we're a sophisticated audience. And see how that goes. <laughs> I'm going to be reading a poem by Barbara Hamby, Mambo Cadillac. And uh, I just really like the poem. I love the title. I love the... Uh, it's fun to read. And I like the idea of the desperation involved in the poem. Uh, I think we make a lot of strange choices when desperate times arrive, and uh, usually they're not too good. <laughs> so anyway, think about riding in this Cadillac with uh, these people over the Labor Day weekend. <laughs> Mambo Cadillac. Drive me to the edge in your Mambo Cadillac. Turn left at the graveyard and gas that baby, the black night ringing with its holy roller scream. I'll clock you on the highway at 3 a.m. Amen, brother. Smack the road as hard as we can, because I'm going to crack the world in two. Make a hoodoo soup with chicken necks, a gumbo with a plutonium roux, a little snack before the dirt, and jalapeno stew that will shock the skin right off your slinky hips, Mr. I'm not stuck in a middle-class prison with someone I hate, sack of blues. Put on your high-wire shoes, Mr. Wright, and stick with me, because I'm going nowhere fast, the burlesque queen of this dim scene. I want to feel the wind, the glock in my mouth, going south, down by the riverside shock of the view. Take me to Shingles Fried Chicken Shack in your mumbo Cadillac. I was gone but I'm back for good this time. I've taken the shine to daylight. Crank up that radio, baby. Put on some dance music and shake your moneymaker, sweetheart. Rev it up to Mach 2. I'm talking to you, Mr. Magoo. Sit up. Check out that blonde with a leopard print tattoo. Oh, she'll lick the sugar right off your donut and bill you, too. Speak French while she do the do. Parlez-vous Francais? Okay, pick me up tonight at 10 in your mumbo Cadillac. Because we got a date with the devil. So fill the tank with high-octane rhythm and blues, sugar cane and shark bait, too. We got some miles to cover, me and you. Think Chile, Argentina, Peru. Take some time off work, because we're going to be gone a lot longer than a week or two. Is this D-Day or Waterloo? White or black, it's up to you. We'll be in Mexico tonight. Pack a razor, pack some glue. Things fall apart off the track. And that's where we'll be, baby, in your mumbo Cadillac. Because you're looking for love but I'm looking for a wreck. <laughs> Professor uh, Trinti Minha is a writer, filmmaker, visual artist, and music composer. Among her works are the books Elsewhere Within, 
here, excuse me, elsewhere within here, Cinema Interval, Women, Native, Other, and a collection of poems. She's produced seven feature-length films, and she has been honored with numerous retrospectives around the world and is a professor here in the Department of Rhetoric, Gender, and Women's Studies. Welcome. Since I have a small voice, you know, just want to test. Can you hear back there? Yes. Very good. So um, I guess for me, um, poetry mainly has to do with a state of receptivity. And so when I think about favorite poem, I would think about favorite moments of receptivity. And so I would um, read here from a book in progress, um, a book that I wrote in relation to the wounds of our time. But I would not read all these wounds of our time. I would just point to these moments where one founder from shore to shore, one experienced instances of all white in the midst of radiant life, and one takes a dive into the infinite realms of twilight gray. And so here are just a few notes here and there. No reality, I reality, lasts the length of a printed letter. Gray sky, no clouds in sight. Gray soil, no line within view. A shape, a shade. Tiny, ephemeral, hardly visible. How it wanders between woman and deer. Sky and earth, mingling to infinity. All around is gray, the color of mutual reflection. No high, no low. Far away, no bound, no ending. Solo, a surface. Expansive, flat, matte, alone with itself. As the skylight dims, images begin flowing, shading towards the shadow screen. Noises recede. Stillness slowly settles in. Scattered into the evening breeze, the fragrance of dead wood, and of moist earth. Now, no time. A hollow vessel is sitting wide, ready to sound at the slightest contact. Words swell and recede at their own pace. Some cling and stick to one's skin. Others float in the room between floor and ceiling. Liquid, they evaporate and dry up. Sometimes, just as they seem to fade into white, they return wet again in a solitary sneeze. Something not being said is speaking silently, which demands and endures waiting. Wind riding on sea skin, sea tongues, and unsolicited voices drift in and are driven out. When everything seems to decay and the remains are swept away, the wind rises again, 
only it knows the waves, whence they come, where they are heading. One either follows, swims against, at one's own risk, or else floats empty, undulating adrift, tossed about in nothingness, writ in the language of flotsam. There, amidst the sea, a woman stands, a single W holding up the sky while diving into the wreck of the infamous wall. Thank you. Michael Palmer has been an administrative assistant for 26 years in the Summer Sessions office. He graduated from UC Berkeley in 1978 with a bachelor's degree in English. He has had poetry published in the Berkeley Poetry Review, Milvia Street, Ultra Running, and Quiet Lightning 2.0. Michael. Um, can you hear me? Uh, the poem I'm going to read is called The Only Animal um, by Franz Wright. It's the last poem in the collection, Walking to Martha's Vineyard, for which he, uh, the collection for which he won the Pulitzer Prize in 2004. And there's a Berkeley connection to uh, Franz. He lives in Massachusetts now, but when he was going to high school in Walnut Creek, He'd come over to Berkeley and take a class on Pindar, and he had a part-time job working at a service station on Telegraph Avenue down in Oakland. And I chose this poem because, for me, it's the most life-affirming poem I've ever read. The Only Animal. The Only Animal That Commits Suicide went for a walk in the park, basked on a hard bench in the first star, traveled to the edge of space in an armchair while company quietly talked and abruptly returned, the room empty. The only animal that cries, that takes off its clothes and reports to the mirror, the one and only animal that brushes its own teeth somewhere. The only animal that smokes a cigarette, that lies down and flies backward in time, that rises and walks to a book and looks up a word, heard the telephone ringing in the darkness downstairs and decided to answer no more. And I understand too well how many times have I made the decision to dwell from now on in the hour of my death. The space I took up here, scholarly, closing like water, and said, I'm never coming back. And yet, this morning, I stood once again in this world, the garden, ark, and vacant tomb of what I can't imagine, between twin eternities, 
some sort of wings, more or less equidistantly exiled from both, hovering in the dreaming called being awake where you gave me in secret one thing to perceive, the tall, blue, starry strangeness of being here at all. You gave us each in secret something to perceive. Furless now, upright, my banished and experimental child, you said, though your own heart condemn you, I do not condemn you. Thank you. Kent Pocket is an um, associate professor of English here at Berkeley. He's the author of Bad Form, Social Mistakes, and the 19th Century. His essays have appeared in Critical Inquiry, Victorian Studies, the Henry James Review, and Partial Answers. Professor Puckett. Um, thank you so much for letting me read a poem. Um, most of my work, as may have been clear uh, from the introduction, is on the, the 19th century, and I really focus on the 19th century novel. But today, um, I want to read an American poem from the 70s, uh, a poem from John Ashbery's volume, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror. And it's a poem I read a long, long time ago, and it's always stuck with me for a few different reasons. The first, I think, is that my memory of reading this poem for the first time is, in a way, a memory of reading literature outside of any institutional demand, right? You know, I'm a, I'm a professor now. I was a student for a long time before I was a professor, and so there's always a way in which you're reading in response to an assignment, a structure, an institution, and somehow this poem uh, escaped that a little bit for me. So I, I remember that moment um, as an important one. Uh, also, since I read the poem first a long time ago and have thought about it ever since, it seemed always to do a different kind of work when I do think about it. So the kind of work that it seems to me now to do is to make some choices that we uh, might often think are necessary. So choices both about life and about art, uh, between the pragmatic and the ideal, between form and feeling, between convention and experiment, between the ordinary and the extraordinary, um, these necessary or seemingly necessary choices seem far less necessary after reading uh, Ashbury's poem. So this is called, As One Put Drunk Into the Packet Boat. I tried each thing, only some were immortal and free. Elsewhere we are as sitting in a place where sunlight filters down, a little at a time waiting for someone to come. Harsh words are spoken as the sun yellows the green of the maple tree. So this was all, but obscurely I felt the stirrings of new breath in the pages, which all winter long had smelled like an old catalog. New sentences were starting up, but the summer was well along, not yet past the midpoint, but full and dark with the promise of that fullness, that time when one can no longer wander away, and even the least attentive fall silent to watch the thing that is prepared to happen. A look of glass stops you as you walk on shaken. Was I the perceived? Did they notice me this time as I am, or is it postponed again? 
The children still at their games, clouds that arise with a swift impatience in the afternoon sky, then dissipate as limpid, dense twilight comes. Only in that tooting of a horn down there, for a moment I thought the great formal affair was beginning, orchestrated, its colors concentrated in a glance, a ballad that takes in the whole world now, but lightly, still lightly, but with wide authority and tact. The prevalence of those gray flakes falling, they are sun motes. You have slept in the sun longer than the sphinx and are none the wiser for it. Come in. And I thought a shadow fell across the door, but it was only her come to ask once more if I was coming in, and not to hurry in case I wasn't. This night sheen takes over. A moon of Cistercian pallor has climbed to the center of heaven, installed, finally involved with the business of darkness. And a sigh heaves from all the small things on earth, the books, the papers, the old garters and union suit buttons kept in a white cardboard box somewhere, and all the lower versions of cities flattened under the equalizing night. The summer demands and takes away too much, but the night, the reserved, the reticent, gives more than it takes. Finally, we have Sam Redman, an academic specialist in the Regional Oral History Office. This has the distinction of being the only library acronym that rhymes. ROHO. ROHO in the Bancroft Library. Um, He serves there as the lead interviewer for the Rosie the Riveter World War II American Homeland um, Homefront Oral History Project. Sam is also a PhD candidate in the Department of History. Thank you very much. As Tom said, my name is Sam Redman, and it's truly a pleasure to be here today, thanks to the organizers of this great event. The Lunch Poem series represents one of the many reasons why Berkeley is such a wonderful environment. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to read alongside these other members of the campus community. I'm also very fortunate, as Tom said, to work as a historian at the Regional Oral History Office, or ROHO, a research arm of the Bancroft Library right here at UC Berkeley. Specifically, I'm the lead interviewer on the Rosie the Riveter World War II American Homefront Oral History Project. In producing oral histories that document the lives of hundreds of women and men who lived and worked on the home front, we can add to our knowledge of the social and cultural life uh, in the, of the middle 20th century in the United States. Today, I'll be reading a poem that speaks to our collective memory of the Second World War. Author Robert Hedin sees the passing of what's been called the greatest generation as a gradually darkening house, filling with the silent evening of forgotten histories. At Rojo, we argue that the story of the home front includes narratives of shipyards, factories, and labors, labor, as well as the story of heartbreak, loneliness, and tragedy. And we often forget that wartime experiences uh, by many were a moment of great adventure, excitement, and sometimes even passion. Our oral history project, then, is conceptually driven by these complexities of the home front and offering a critical addition to to the dominant narratives of military heroism, uh, strategy, and loss, this type of stuff we see on the History Channel. 
All of these stories, we argue, are worth preserving for future generations of historians to continually reinterpret. At their most interesting, some of our interviews dig deeper and push towards interpretations that go beyond the purely nostalgic notion of the Second World War as the good war. Over the past decade, Rojo has preserved over 130 first-hand accounts of the war years. And I'm very pleased to share that uh, one of the, the, the men that I've interviewed for this project has joined us here today, and I thank him for being here. These interviews represent a diverse array of perspectives, those of welders, riveters, school teachers, police officers, among others. Yet all of these interviews reflect an aging generation contemplating and reconsidering their own memories. As historians, in addition to adding to our archive of source material, we can also think critically about collections and work to reframe them within broader historical context. Our oral histories are continually reborn to a wide and diverse array of audiences through new documentaries, monographs, museum exhibits, dissertations, and in the undergraduate, and I'm happy to say now in the high school curriculum. Very often we have a special appreciation for poetry that speaks to our own identity. Like almost everyone in this room, I identify with the memory of the Second World War through both the history I've studied and the family stories passed down to me. While in high school, my father became good friends with a young man who would go on to become a very accomplished poet, teacher, and facilitator of the arts. Robert Hadeen, like my father and I, grew up in the town of Red Wing, Minnesota, surrounded by gigantic figures who were veterans of the Second World War. I offer you a voice from my hometown. This is Robert Hadeen's poem, The Old Liberators. Of all of the people I like in the mornings at the mall, it's the old liberators that I like the best. Those veterans of the Bulge, Anzio, or Monte Cassino, I see lost in automotive or back-in-home repair. Bored among the paints and the power tools, or the really old ones, the ones who are going fast, who keep dozing off in the little orchards of shade underneath distant skylights. All around, from one bright rack to another, their wives stride big as generals, their handbags bulging like ripe fruit. They're almost all gone now, and with them, they're taking the flak and the firestorms and the names of the old bombing runs. Each day, a little more of their memory goes out, darkens the way a house darkens, its room quietly filling with evening, until nothing but winds lift the lace curtains, the wind bearing through the empty rooms, the rich far-off scent of gardens, where just now, this morning, light is falling on the wild philodendrons. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.